Today in Business from Wired. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Here's today's spoken edition of Wired. Fighting a wildfire in Texas, building a network to connect 40 million people to the internet. Cutting pollution with chainsaws. Hear Chubb customers tell their stories at chubb.com slash podcast. And stay tuned after the show to hear how a sinkhole swallowed eight priceless sports cars. Facebook posts aren't going to help the Rohingya refugees. By Sabanas Rashid Dia. Never in my life have I seen so many frightened people huddled together in such a small space my friend posted on Facebook in October. A resident at a local hospital, she is working unpaid hours at Ukia, responding to the arrival of over half a million persecuted Rohingya Muslims in Bangladesh since late August. Wounded men, raped women, children who witnessed their parents getting slaughtered. The survivors tell horrific tales of how the Buddhist militia attacked and burnt their homes to the ground. In less than 70 days, Kutupalong, now one of the largest refugee camps in the world, has become makeshift shelter to nearly 300,000 Rohingya Muslims. Jahanara, a young Rohingya woman, was standing in the relief queue with her four-month-old daughter for nearly six hours one day in October when trained volunteers from my organization, One Degree Initiative Foundation, approached her. They had not eaten anything since the night before. As others went about their day, Jahanara told the volunteers that this was not uncommon. Baby food, women's hygiene products, emergency medicine, mosquito repellent, and power had all been lacking since she had arrived in Balukali, one of the many sites where the authorities have permitted makeshift settlements to be set up three weeks earlier. In spite of resettlement efforts from a number of multilateral organizations and local NGOs, the United Nations estimates it still needs $434 million to meet the needs of the Rohingya refugees. 
Since the early 1990s, in the midst of reports of human rights abuses by the Myanmar army, successive waves of Rohingya Muslims have been displaced from the state of Rakhine in Myanmar and have headed for Bangladesh. The UN Refugee Agency was among the first to respond back then. This time, since the unprecedented influx in August, local volunteers and professional aid workers alike have occupied the camps. My friend, the medical resident, is among hundreds who travel to Kutapalong to volunteer their services. Because I've worked with pools of volunteers trained in humanitarian crisis response for 11 years in Bangladesh, my social circle has evolved into an expansive network of first responders, young entrepreneurs, development practitioners, and journalists. So I recently found my Facebook newsfeed inundated with updates. Half the refugees are children. Pregnant women face unspeakable challenges. Ten thousand new arrivals today. Need emergency relief. In the aftermath of most disasters, victims use Facebook's safety check megaphone to indicate they are safe. But in this case, the story of persecuted Muslims from the state of Rakhine is a social media narrative, told through the lens of volunteers, photographers, and relief groups. This story very quickly evolved to a desperate appeal for donations, and urbanites in the country's capital reacted quickly. Corporate agencies and college students launched campaigns on Facebook and collected old clothes, bottles of filtered water, cookies, and other dry food, baby towels, blankets, cash. There was only one problem: these well-intentioned people didn't know where and how to distribute these goods. This is not a new scenario in a humanitarian crisis, and certainly not one for Bangladesh, especially in the advent of social networking platforms. When I was working in rehabilitation initiatives following the 2013 Savar tragedy, an eight-story factory building that collapsed in broad daylight and killed 1,134 garment workers. I experienced a similar sense of urgency and intent from Dakaites. Within hours of the collapse, Facebook became a free market for sending and receiving donations, without much specificity on what was actually needed. And my phone rang endlessly. Everyone asked how they could help, and some even sent relief packages to our office: water, painkillers, dry food. There were images on Facebook of well-intended people handing off a check to a wailing mother here and a distraught husband there. The reality of the situation, however, was more grave. Victims and families did not need packages and Facebook posts. They needed answers and medical attention. Hospitals needed fewer reporters and amateur photographers, and instead would have benefited from more staff and more beds to tend to injured workers. At our small office, we needed more space to brief volunteers, who in turn could support more families to find their loved ones, who were sometimes located dead or in a wheelchair. More recently, as I browsed through Facebook, I saw a familiar pattern emerge. My friends, many of whom are either paramedics or journalists in Dhaka but working at the camps, posted photographs of exasperated volunteers in a truck. Leaving the camps hurriedly while just throwing clothes in all directions, 
Despite their mostly good intentions, they were not prepared to meet the hunger and desperation of refugees both inside and outside the camp, realities that virtual platforms clearly failed to communicate. There are videos of many trucks fleeing and leaving behind a stampede of children and a trail of ripped jeans and cookie boxes. What I find most unsettling is the apparent need to immediately post images or words on Facebook following disasters. Our virtual network inevitably demands our presence. Sometimes through a gesture of benevolence, other times by reposting the viral image of a crying child, heavily post-processed to strip her off what little dignity she has left, and a note that says, Can you not feel the pain? Do something. I remember a particularly frightening picture of the photographing of a Rohingya Hindu woman on Facebook. Her husband was killed in front of her, and she had walked, sometimes ran, for eight days to reach the refugee camp in Teknaf. Her face was posted everywhere to prove hard-line Buddhists did not spare anyone, but the hollowness in her eyes was unmistakable. The picture that shook me was that of a crowd of people with their smartphones out, surrounding her, tapping and flashing as she stared back in silence. In managing any form of disaster, whether by retrieving bodies under rubbles or aiding 24,000 pregnant women at a refugee camp, the most important action is resisting the human urge to do something and subsequently doing more harm than good. Entering the Rohingya camps without having adequate trauma training and coordination with organizations on the ground can be just as impeding as the overcrowding rendered through so-called disaster tourism, a phrase that has become increasingly familiar as social networking platforms grow. The only effective way to meet needs is by channeling monetary donations to organizations that have the capacity to manage crisis and let authorities work with locals to do their jobs. The 1998 flooding in Bangladesh was deemed to be the disaster of the century, covering more than two-thirds of the country. Despite significant loss of agricultural lands, fewer flood-related deaths occurred than expected. Broadly effective government interventions, targeted information dissemination, and centrally coordinated response from civil society prevented what could have been a more fatal blow to the country. In the absence of social networking platforms that are so insidiously tied to our social identities, did we mourn less for those deaths and harm that occurred? Does the absence of our presence make it less cumbersome for authorities to do their jobs? When a Rohingya woman named Kalida arrived with her three children in Shah Puria Dweep in Bangladesh at dawn a few weeks ago, she told the medical team that she was first greeted by local volunteers. As volunteers, first responders and journalists later told me, Khalida's photograph was hastily taken by a bunch of young boys wearing identical shirts who promised to help her. Later that day, she found herself alone in the middle of a puddle, making her way to a place where help actually exists. As refugees continue coming and media coverage detracting, the best way to respond to the crisis is by donating to the UN Refugee Agency and largest local NGO, BRAC, not posting empty calls for help on Facebook.
This podcast was made possible by Chubb. Hear how a sinkhole opened up under the National Corvette Museum. Right now. Betty called me at six in the morning. She thought it was a fire. It was worse. A sinkhole opened up under our museum. Eight priceless Corvettes had plunged into it. Chubb was there within hours. They helped make sure it was safe. We had everyone we needed to get our museum back up and running. And we opened the next day. Hear more stories at chubb.com slash podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.